0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We're very thrilled to
1: have Dr. Alex Eastman who is an assistant professor of surgery at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He's the trauma medical director-in-chief at the Reese Jones Trauma Center in Parkland. Uh, and he's also very interesting. He's the lieutenant and deputy medical director of Dallas Police Department, something we haven't had on before. You can find him at Twitter at, at @pmh_trauma_ale underscore A-L-E. Alex, welcome to Behind the Knife. I appreciate the invitation to come. I've been a fan of Behind the Knife since it's gotten started, and it's an honor to be here with you guys.
2: You know, just to kind of get started, we we were hoping you'd give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself, kind of how you got where you are today, what you did as far as, you know, where you're from, the kind of training you did, that sort of thing. Um, And then to piggyback off of that, why did you choose, you know, trauma surgery, and how much uh, did the critical care aspect of things play into that choice?
1: I guess a little bit about me. I came uh, to trauma surgery from a from a career, a previous career, um, as a firefighter rescuer in Montgomery County, Maryland, outside of D.C. So, um, when I decided to, I don't want to say bite the bullet, but when I decided to bite the bullet and go to medical school, it was fully intended to be an emergency physician. And then I got to medical school at GW, and I was like, I you know had a fantastic rotation in general surgery got a little bit of exposure to trauma there and realized that um, I didn't think that I really could have a fulfilling lifelong career of, of being an emergency physician um, that, that hit me pretty quick. And um, so in the general surgery I went and it was uh, probably the best, one of the best decisions I ever made. And so having been a medical student at GW, uh, one of the best places to stay uh, to be a med student Um, as I've now seen many. Um, And I had just a couple of amazing mentors there. Um, First in a guy named Jules Cahan, who was a retired private practice surgeon that um, ran our student rotation out at a community hospital. But he ran it as academically as any rotation I had in medical school, and it really, um, in many ways, shaped the way um, that I became an academic surgeon. And the other one there uh, for sure was, was Steve Evans, who uh, subsequently left GW, went back to Georgetown, and then obviously became the chair of the American Board of Surgery. Um, but, but probably the best Socratic teacher I've ever seen uh, in all of medicine, and, and I've seen some good ones. Uh, certainly be a tie between um, Steve Evans and Erwin Thal uh, for the top in my book. But, but those two guys at GW really shaped and pushed me into academic surgery, and down to Parkland, I went um, to be a general surgery intern mm. um, in, in July of 2001. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I'm proud to still be there today.
3: What was it like when you started at Parkland?
1: It was pretty crazy. I mean, you know, it, was, uh, it, it Parkland in very many ways is an old school training program. And um, it's a training program in a big public hospital that does um, a lot of public health surgical work that requires a large resident manpower force and mm. there are people that would look down their nose at that today and say that's not the right way to train surgeons but i will tell you that um for you know more than 50 years the training program at parkland has been turning out highly sought after graduates that have gone into everything from you know missionary surgery in the bush to high-powered academic careers and, definitely uh, when I got there, you know, it was, uh, it was in a transition. It was in a, there was no 80 hour work week yet. There was no, um, you know, it, it was a program in transition and I, I've, I've been proud to watch it grow over the years and, um, and, and hopefully over the last seven or eight contribute to it growing. So.
3: And what's your practice like over there now?
1: Our practice there is, um, it is, is, you know, a classic academic uh, trauma, surgical critical care and acute care surgery practice. Um, I have 12 partners, three of whom focus exclusively on burns, so we kind of take them out of the calculations, but the rest of us um, do trauma surgery at a very busy urban level one trauma center uh, here in Dallas, Texas. Um, And I also obviously do the surgical critical care there. And, and a very brisk uh, acute care surgery service. Just by way of example, our service alone does does nearly um, somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to seventeen hundred cholecystectomies a year. Um, so it, it's and that's just our service, not any of the other general surgical services at Parkland. In addition to the Parkland side, we also staff uh, the University Hospital, so Clements University Hospital, um, and we staff a surgical ICU and a um, acute care surgery service up there. They don't do any trauma um, at Clemens, so you know it's a it's a week of you know, up there. It's a week of acute care surgery and, and some time in the ICU uh,
0: and a little bit of a break.
1: But so it's a it's a it's a busy, brisk academic trauma acute care surgery practice.
0: And, and sir, I heard you have a uh, quite the top notch uh, trauma fellowship. Is that true? We we uh,
1: we have an outstanding fellowship. We train. The best, the brightest, uh, only those that are capable of making it through the crucible of the trauma fellowship. And uh, we, we only, uh, we never, ever have lowered those standards since I was the trauma fellow here. And uh, so, congratulations on joining us next year, Jeb. We're looking forward to
0: having you. Oh, man, I was going to ask you what his chances were first. I was hoping you'd... <laughs> For our listeners out there, Jeb is one of our uh, co-residents, and he's get, going to do trauma. He's one of the top residents out here and going to do trauma at uh, UT Southwestern, so that's Not why he's joining us today. October
2: 4th, but that's, that's the plan.
3: So, Dr. Eastman, in addition to your work as a trauma surgeon, we've heard that you do quite a bit with the Dallas Police Department. Could you tell us some stories about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um... In 2004, I was looking for, um, you know, what I was going to do for my sort of, and I use this in the most loose term possible to all the scientists out there that I'm getting ready to offend, but for my lab sabbatical during residency. Um, And and what I initially intended to do was to really reshape the way that surgeons respond to um, disasters, both man-made and natural, certainly um, a timely topic, seemingly timely topic right now as we're recovering from Harvey and responding to um, Irma, Hurricane Irma right now. But, uh, and a lot of what I had intended to do in my lab time was to bridge my career as a firefighter, rescuer, pre-hospital provider with what I had done as a surgeon and try to make those things um, a little more harmonious.
3: Hmm. And so
1: the very first month of my Research time, um, which included a appointment and embedded position in the Dallas Fire Rescue Department and into the city's, you know, emergency services structure. They asked me to meet with the SWAT team commander uh, to see if we could help them start an operational medical program for the Dallas Police Department SWAT team and the police department in general. And so I went to want to lunch with a with a guy named Bob Owens who was a lieutenant in the police department and the operational commander of the SWAT unit at the time. Um, And that changed that lunch changed the shape of my career. Hmm. Uh, Since then um, we have what I think is the premier operational medical program in a large metropolitan law enforcement agency. Um, I am a Dallas police department, Lieutenant um, a fully certified Texas peace officer. I, I, Carry a badge and a gun, and wear a uniform, and put bad people in jail. And my current assignment, huh. as Lieutenant, is SWAT unit, um, where I do everything from uh, take care of injured officers to put bad people in jail. Uh, and it's it's a it's been a pretty wild ride. And uh, We can certainly talk about specifics as we go on, but but suffice it to say, I've done um, in 14 years on the Dallas Police SWAT team. I've done everything from um, Provide dignitary protection to every president, Salman Rushdie, uh, to name a few, to uh, performing a cricothyroidotomy on a dear friend who was shot in the neck during one of our operations, So, and, and everything in between. Um, so it's, been, it, it's definitely been a wild ride, fellas.
3: Wow. So you just alternate that with your call shifts as a general surgeon and a trauma surgeon?
1: I'd like, I'd like to say that, you know, I don't know about alternating, I'd like to say that it's integrated seamlessly. Um, at at times uh, it certainly uh, doesn't feel seamless but I I can tell you this I have um, the best partners in the world and the best boss in the world um, who are incredibly supportive and do and, and and their help you know really allows me to do the things that I have done do and the things that I've done over the years and I I'm incredibly grateful to work with um, an outstanding group of men and women who truly care about each other. And, and, and I think, you know, as I've gotten a little bit older um, in this business, I, I, I can't tell you how invaluable that is. And to all of the trainees who are listening and, and looking at jobs and positions and fellowships and, you know, making decisions about the next steps in your career, um, I, I can tell you that the, the job is important and the specifics of the job is important. And what you do and how you do it and how your partner's practice is important, but but what is probably most important is who you do all that with um, and how you get along with them and how mm-hmm. they get along with each other. And if you and, and I would say as you're evaluating whatever it is from fellowship to chairmanship, um, don't 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 skimp on making sure you take a good look at who the people you be working with are.
3: Yeah, and I bet that relationship in particular gets tested a lot when crises arise can you take us back to july 2016
1: yeah sure so i mean that night was um like any other um it it was summer of 2016 was a difficult time to be in law enforcement in the united states um we had had some trying incidents and some i would say less than shining examples of of the way to police communities and um it, was, it made it challenging for all of us, and so the night of July 7, um, I was um, the backup trauma surgeon at Parkland, and um, I was out to dinner with my college friends, who many things live here in Dallas, but in the background, we had a, a decent-sized protest, about 800, 900 people downtown, and we had one, SWAT, one squad of our SWAT unit working that night. I was actually off-duty that night, but... Um, just with all the things that were going on in town and the way the sort of tenor of the protests had been, um, I decided to drive my city truck up to this dinner. And so it was like just before nine o'clock, and I was on my way home. Uh, I, I remember exactly where I was. I was coming southbound on the Dallas North Tollway, and um, and I got a text message. First thing I heard was uh, there was a text message, and and I i'm reticent to say this on behind the knife but uh to all the injury prevention people out there don't listen to the next 30 seconds but but while driving i I looked at the text message and it said you know wtf are you okay and i thought it was weird because yeah i mean of course i was okay and then immediately after that the phone rang and it was our communications section and so as the chief medical officer of the police department i get you know at least one phone call a day or more from our communications group that is telling me about something that's going on, an officer with a minor injury or something like that. And this was like no phone call I'd ever gotten before. It was, um, and I still don't know who it was, a female dispatcher screaming into the phone. And all she said was, active shooter, Maine and Lamar, multiple officers down. And, you know, it takes your breath away when you hear something like that. So, you know, I turned all the emergency equipment in my vehicle on and drove as fast as I could uh, into this mess downtown. And got there about, you know, six minutes or so after the first shots were fired. Um, jumped out of my truck in an intersection with with four other SWAT officers who we had all sort of met up in the same place. And it was the last real place that you could drive because there was so much mayhem in the streets, some people were running, and there was gunfire, and 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 cars abandoned in the street, and officers' motorcycles had been dropped in the street, and... It, it, it was um, one of the worst things I've I've seen in my career, and so I realized that you know not only was this you know the real deal, but I was dressed in shorts and a polo shirt. So I had to put on some more police-looking stuff and don all my equipment, and then the five of us made our way, you know, um, three and a half blocks north into the fray. By the time that night was over, you know, five officers would have been, would be killed that night. Uh, a handful others were wounded. Uh, it was the deadliest attack on law enforcement in the United States since September 11th, 2001. And, um, and, 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 you know, the things I did that night tested every um, bit of training that I had as a police officer, as a leader. Um, I I was proud of the way that my partners at Parkland responded to take care of the officers who were brought there, um, and 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 really took care of things at the hospital while I was um, in the field dealing with with what caused all this mess. Um, but but you know uh, something like that definitely exposes um, who your your the true colors of your friends and partners and how they respond uh, not only to an incident like that. Um, but how they respond to you afterwards, and and, and like I said at the beginning, I, I am very proud of the people that I work with today.
2: Absolutely. So, sir, just to kind of you know piggyback off of off of that and some of the things you mentioned at the at the beginning of our interview, you know, disaster management obviously is um, something you think about quite a bit um can you from the medical side of things and, and surgery specifically can you talk a little bit about um, you know the importance of you know training for disaster management and how that looks uh, you know if you want to give examples from from uh, parkland and and your experience uh, I think that'd be great but you know for, especially for people who don't think about that as often um, I think it's an important topic and, and something we should probably know a little more about yeah sure so I
1: think you know, one of the things that's interesting about um, managing a disaster from the medical and surgical side, or certainly from the big medical center side, is that it, it really is a a test of your leadership skills like none other. Um, and and the disaster program at Parkland has always been run by um, one of the trauma surgeons. For a variety of reasons, but I think one of the things that's unique about our practice—and I don't care what you call it, whether it's trauma and acute surgical care, whether it's sort of hospitalist, whether it's you know ACS, whatever you call our practice—we touch almost every area of the hospital in what we do, and, and and by virtue of that, you build relationships that are really critical when you then have to convert your hospital over from normal operations to disaster operations. And I think that, that that is really the biggest benefit of, of and, and the lessons learned. And I've been involved in, in, in many, uh, from Hurricane Katrina all the way up to what's going on today. And so I think what's important for surgeons to understand is that um, it's really a couple of things. One, when you get into true disaster mode and you have to um, – and listen, you know, being a leader of disaster is nothing more than, than making sure that you – um, ensure the reality of whatever your vision is as the disaster incident commander, you make sure that that's a shared reality among all of the partners who've come together to to, um, to help you get this, whatever it is, done. If you've never um, read the book The Mission, the Men, and Me by, by a guy named Pete Blaver, I think it's, it's probably mandatory reading for um, general surgery residents who are going into trauma. and They're going to be running teams of type A men and women for the rest of their lives. Um, because it really talks about, uh, and Pete Blaine was the commander of whatever you want to call the Army's pointy, pointy, tip of the spear unit. But we'll call them Delta, for lack of a better name at the moment. And, and, and the, the book, I think, is must-reading, because it, it, it gives some really good lessons about motivating and leading type A men. And in Pete's case, type A men. In our case, type A men and women. Um, but, but I think, you know, running your institution in a disaster and in a disaster mode really requires a couple of things. It requires you to understand that that you're going to alter the standards of care, and for many surgeons, that's difficult for them to accept, right. um, and, and it's your job as the incident commander to help them understand that. And the second thing that, that is really interesting about disaster management response, hospital incident command, is, is most surgeons are used to being... Uh, the king of their own little universe um, every day. Especially when you get into one, the magnitude of Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, September 11th. I mean, once you get into the magnitude of that, the medical response is a piece of the overall disaster response, but it's not the entirety of it. And I think for many surgeons, that's a difficult lesson. And in, in physicians in general, that's sure. a difficult lesson to learn when you become a cog in the wheel. Now, albeit a very important cog in the wheel, but when you become a cog in the wheel, um, more so than the captain of the ship, uh, it it requires some learning. And so it's interesting, I've watched many of the people I work with grow up uh, here in town over the course of multiple disasters and activations, and watching them go from having no idea how they fit into a chain of command in disaster during Katrina to watching them fit into it very well now during Harvey, you feel like you've watched people grow a little
2: bit yeah i'm sure that's that's something that's difficult for people who aren't used to that sort of uh mindset
0: so sir one the one of the next areas we're going to go to um before we get to our uh, tips and tricks is we're hoping uh given the busy trauma center you work in in the past year you could uh uh, think of a challenging case that you had and uh, lesson and tell us about it. And then uh, some lessons that our listeners can learn from that case.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I, yeah, this is interesting. Th- this is a, a relatively recent, um, case for me. And I mean, it's a kind of a trauma case and it's not really a trauma case, but I was called to the operating room on call one night to assist one of our surgical oncologists who had taken a right hepatectomy back to the operating room and had some bleeding from the retroepatic vena cava. And it's interesting because I think a lot of times um, other surgeons look at us as traumatologists as, I, mean, I don't want to say not real surgeons, but they sort of look at the non-operative side of what we do, and I think it detracts from the fact that at the end of the day, um, every one of us is a, is, a, is a pretty good surgeon as well. So, we're called to the operating room. And you walk in, and it's just like a level one trauma. There's mayhem. There's people buzzing about. There's lots of things going on. There's the massive transfusion protocols running, and there's you know seven anesthesia providers at the head of the bed, and it's noisy and it's and you walk into mayhem. And and one of the first things that you have to do as a trauma surgeon is bring calm to chaos, and, and that's what we do a lot. And so once you get control of the room, and you get get everyone sort of moving in the right direction to help save the patient um, instead of buzzing about in their own little spheres you establish some priorities of care you establish what the next procedure is going to look like and then you go scrub and get your hands dirty and you get in and you help uh, a, a very good sort of oncologist repair an injury to the retropatic vena cava pretty challenging place to get to um, and so from my standpoint you know, the lessons for people to learn when you think about that is, one, uh, you, you're, you're, you are the ultimate calm in any storm. And, and that will, if you have a career in, in trauma and acute care surgery, you're going to bring that calm to chaos many, many times a month uh, in your practice. And that, that's part of what, what we look for in a good trauma surgeon and a good partner is are they able to take a room that is completely out of control and provide enough firm, strong, calm leadership to get it back under control? And then can you do what you need to do in the operating room? And, and repairing a retro panic cable injury is challenging, but it really requires you to, to fall back on the most basic of technical pearls. And I think that it always is humbling to me that even though this is sort of the pinnacle of what we do, um, you fall back onto the same things you learned the first day of, of your rotation in medical school or of your internship about uh, gentle tissue handling, slow being fast, uh, and, and, and being making deliberate, well thought out technical moves um, to get the bleeding control. Uh, and I think you know, those lessons are applicable no matter what the crisis uh, you're facing. And, and I think they're super important for um, everybody who is is you know just getting started in this business and And, and I'll be frank, I feel like I haven't done this very well, you know, less than a decade in practice. Um, but but I you know those are the kind of things that I think as I look back on the mistakes I've made um, uh, over the years that that those are the lessons that I've learned. It's good to put them in practice.
3: That's great. Sir, for this next segment, we'd like to transition over to the tips and tricks. Uh, It's a chance for us to learn from you how you might um, work your way through a sticky situation. And, you know, we feel really lucky to have you here as a medical professional and an expert in the uh, police department. So we'd love to ask, um, there have been multiple instances around the world where people have come into a hospital or a mall or some sort of public area and started shooting. Um, So in these active shooter scenarios, could you walk us through the best and worst options, how you might manage or approach this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a vexing problem from a public safety standpoint and from a hospital leadership standpoint. So let's, let's take a couple of, let's separate those things into two separate responses. Number one. You are out with your family, you're in a shopping mall, and this begins to unfold around you. I think the guidance that's come out from the Department of Homeland Security is best, um, and that is the, the, the moniker run, hide, fight describes the steps you should take. I mean, if you can get yourself and your family out of harm's way, then you should do that, and you should run as far and as fast as you can. If that's not an option, for whatever reason, then you should take cover, hide, get out of sight, and 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 take your family and do just that and and effectively hide yourselves. And if both of those things are not an option, you can't run, you can't hide, then you're going to be forced to fight. And, and 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 you know I would say that that if you're put in that position, which I hope through your smart sense and your ability to run and hide, you're never in this position. But if you are forced to fight, you know, the only thing I would say is that the only fair fights are the one you lose. And you should take every advantage, uh, you know, no matter what that is, uh, if you're forced into a confrontation. Now, all that being said, um, it's probably not okay for anyone listening to this podcast to just run, hide, or fight because we're going to have to add help into the mix and you know i think as we uh, as the idea of a public access hemorrhage control capability for the united states has evolved from you know tactical combat casualty care through the Hartford consensus and now the stop the bleed program it's probably no longer okay just to say run hide flight it's got to be run hide flight help because everyone listening to this podcast should know or immediately after listening to it should get to know how to apply a tourniquet, you know, a proper field, uh, commercially purpose tourniquet, how to pack a wound with combat cause, and, and how to make a save like that in the field if you're faced with this situation. Because everyone listening to this is going to have to help their fellow man or woman uh, who's injured after something like this. So run, hide, flight help. Now, let's switch gears if this occurs in your hospital instead of in, your, in the shopping mall where you live. And it becomes an even more complicated problem because the ideas of run, hide, fight, help still apply. If you look at some of the recent work that's been done by the Harper Consensus Group and, and, and by Len Jacob and Carol Burns, who just recently studied this, you're going to be hard-pressed to get a surgical critical care nurse to abandon their patient no matter what is going on around them. And so responding to the act, to the hospital active shooter it is, a, is a bit of a more vexing problem. Again, I still would go with run, hide, fight, help as the overarching principles. But if you're put into a position where you have an active shooter in your hospital and it's away from where you are, and you can't obviously move your patient effectively, they can't participate in run, hide, fight, you do have to start thinking about how do you make it harder for that shooter to get onto the ward of the location where you are. And so, um, you know, I'm proud of the the guys at Parkland because the dallas county hospital district police department you know parkland is a little bit unique um we're not certainly not the only hospital that has this but we have a fully functioning police department um at the hospital so the dallas county hospital district police there are about 175 officers that puts them squarely in a mid-sized police department in the united states you know parkland's a mid-sized city it's a city of you know 15 to 45,000 people every day that needs to be policed And so they've led the way at at responding to the hospital active shooter, and we've trained hospital wards to do exactly the opposite of what you would think. You're never going to get those patients out of there. And so if the active shooter's in the building but not at your ward, we've taught these wards to barricade doors and and, and given them some equipment to barricade themselves and make it harder for the shooter to access access where uh, they might be. So... Um, again, I think the idea is still run, hide, fight, help, but, but if you can't do that, you've got to have, um, you got to have the ability to, to barricade and harden the situation where you are. So it's definitely a complicated problem.
2: Absolutely. How, how often would you say, um, you guys do that, that sort of training with the, have, have you ever done with the entire hospital or how does, how does that look at Parkland?
1: You know, hospital-wide disaster drills can be disruptive, and and honestly, you know, they should be disruptive to your hospital if you're doing them right. Sure. So, Joint Commission requires those to be done twice a year, uh, or really once a year, full-scale, once a year, tabletop. And so, you know, it's hard to get a full-scale drill because, again, an, an active shooter drill is even more difficult for hospitals to do because people are nervous about some of the complications that can come with those. But it is critically important and I think the way you do that and and, and, and the more realistic you make the drill the, the better off you are uh, down, down the road. You know you train the, the old adage in the SWAT unit is that you know you train you fight the way you train and so if you, you train unrealistically then when you're forced to fight you'll fall into the same trap and so you know the way i joke about this all the time at parkland but but there is some truth to it if you remember the movie um, the hunt for red october you know the submarine captain played by gene hackman in the middle of uh, an attack and chaos and fire and just getting underway calls for a missile drill and and, and, and that's the time uh, when there's maximum chaos that you want to institute those drills so you know we at parkland have have done disaster drills at night and on the weekend and off hours, and at times that it's not convenient because the trap when you're drilling, and it doesn't just have to be for an active shooter. It could be for any, you know, possible disaster drill. The trap is to do it during normal business hours when it's easy, when you have extra personnel in the hospital, to advertise it ahead of time, uh, and, you know, to give people the scenario. And I think that's the kiss of death, um, no pun intended, for an institution. Um, when you're trying to ready your staff for a disaster. It takes real work, um, and it takes dedication from the leadership of the institution from the top to the bottom um, to, to really effectively train and prepare your staff. And, and I'm glad we have that at Parkland. Um, but, again, it, it takes real work and leadership.
2: Right. Absolutely. Um, if anyone was interested in, you know, uh, most you know major hospitals should have some sort of uh disaster you know management plan in place already but if someone would say it was you know just now um, at some place that either you know didn't have a great uh, system already in place or they were trying to establish it what are some some resources that people could use or, or some places to go to get more information about about setting that sort of thing up and and running the drills yeah. and that sort of thing yes yeah, so, you know one
1: of the things that I think that's unique about about disaster management there are actually professionals that do this for a living um, and if you don't have an emergency manager a dedicated emergency manager in your hospital you probably ought to have one you know parkland has um, an emergency management department that's staffed by five people that are dedicated emergency managers and that's all they do is prepare the hospital for and help us respond to you know crises of various shapes and sizes so if you're in a place that doesn't have someone like that, then I would reach out to the local, you know, government jurisdiction and find whoever their emergency managers, because they're definitely going to have one and say, hey, listen, we need some help. Where do I start? You know, what do I do in terms of making and, and shaping? You know, every hospital has to have a plan, but a lot of times these plans aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Right. So find an emergency manager that knows what they're doing. And if you can't find one in your hospital and you can't find one where you live, and where your hospital, you know, is, then call me, and um, I'll help you get in touch with someone close um, that can that can make the difference. Because again, every response starts with a, a, a well written, well understood plan. So you've
2: got to have that. Absolutely, that's great, sir.
0: All right, sir. Well, now we're going to jump into our final five. Um, some quick questions that um, help our listeners to get to know you uh, more personally uh one of our favorites uh when you're in the operating room uh do you listen to music and if so what type
1: so i do i I let the residents um pick the music but but it's well known that you better come in there with your music a game because uh, a great ice breaking pimp question is to get into uh who's on the radio what year it was who sang it and uh, you know, look, man. I grew up outside of D.C. My family's from San Antonio and Southern California, but I spent my formative years outside of D.C. So nothing better than to drop, you know, hip hop barbecue on Pandora, get some 1980s classic hip hop on the on the uh, on the speakers in the OR, and then go to town on the med students who weren't even born yet uh, when that was when that came out. So um, I, I let the residents picked a music choice but like i said they better be able to bring it uh, when we're
2: there that's already one of my favorite games in the are sir sounds like i'm gonna have a great time over the next couple of years uh, you're gonna be in great <laughs> <laughs> our next question for you um what are some hobbies or talents or interests you have outside of the the operating room or medicine in general
1: um well you know listen i mean i, I like to be outside and work out. And uh, I've got a three-year-old little boy um, that loves to do anything that's outside. And so um, I, I'm, I spend a lot of time chasing him around. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoy spending time with friends and laughing. And um, and so, you know, those are the things that I, that I try to fill my immediate spare time with. I'm a big reader. Um, I think, you know, if you, you, you know, life, you can't experience, everything that everybody else has experienced, but you can certainly read about it. And um, I'm a huge reader and I've, I've read a ton of books uh, when I get the chance for some downtime. Um, and, um, but, but I think in terms of hobbies, uh, you know, if I can get out of the building and get outside, then it doesn't matter what I'm doing. And so that's one of the reasons why the SWAT team side of my job is so great because I get to spend a little bit of time every week outside on the range, out of the hospital somewhere. Um, that's that's different than what you know the normal routine is like.
3: Mm, that's excellent, uh, sir. What's been your all-time favorite trip or vacation? Wow, wow,
1: that is um, that is a, a challenge. I, I'll tell you, I um, I got the chance to spend a couple weeks in Southern Italy and Greece uh, a few years ago, and if you um, like. Beautiful scenery and great hiking and and good food and, and wonderful people than uh, get to Southern Italy and Greece. Um, it, it's really it's remarkable. But I'll tell you, um, it, with with all that's gone on um, in the past month, both here in the state of Texas and now in Florida and the Caribbean, you know some of the best trips I've taken um, have been to go into communities that needed help um, in in a variety of shapes and size in the way that. Uh, people greet you and love you and 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 say thank you and um, some of those trips have been awe-inspiring. So, you know, different reasons from a personal level: uh, go to Italy, go to Greece, get out and see the world. And from a professional level, um, when you get the chance to go help people who are who think they're at their their most dire and final hour, uh,
0: is pretty meaningful. So I'm going to change this question a little bit because I think normally we ask what would you be doing if you're not in medicine. I think we have a pretty good idea of, of what you'd be doing. Um, so what I'm going to ask is what book do you recommend the most that is non-medical related?
1: So two books that I think are must-reads for um, folks that are going to do trauma, critical care, even be a Emergency General Surgeon. I said the first one already, and that is The Mission, The Men, and Me um, by Pete Blaber. Truly the best book about leading type A men and women that I have ever read. And the second book, I think, is one that's got, becoming more and more popular. It actually hits number one on the New York Times bestseller list, a book called Extreme Ownership by uh, a former Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink, um, who has actually a, a pretty good podcast of his own. But but I think you know the way that we train surgeons and what we ask of a trauma surgeon is to perform a highly technical skill with no degradation in that skill under some of the most stressful conditions known to man is very similar to what a Navy SEAL has to do, what a SWAT team officer has to do in making a hostage rescue sort of the hardest thing that we do in the SWAT world, which is to enter a room that's not known to us with unknown threats and potentially take a high percentage shot to end a hostage situation. It requires impeccable training, no degradation of your skills under stress. But yet the way that we train surgeons and the way that we train Navy SEALs and SWAT team officers are wholly different. And I think reading those two books will give you a little bit of glimpse into their mindset, that it takes, um, and I think as we spend, as I spend, the better part of the next decade trying to integrate those two types of training in some way, shape, or form, I think if you read those two books, you've got uh, a head start on the mindset that's required.
3: Hmm, that's good. Uh, finally, if you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself?
1: <laughs> um well, that, that might take a whole nother hour podcast, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I would say, tongue in cheek, I would say I would have run the steps a lot more, but that's that's not, that doesn't do it justice. <laughs> um, you know, guys, I think one of the things that, that the advice that I would give myself, if I could go back and do it all over again, is we fall into the trap a lot as surgical residents, as trauma surgeons of, Um, You know, we we very rightfully earn the reputation of sometimes not being the nicest of guys. And I think that's because we're intense and we're focused and we don't suffer fools and all of those things. Um, I think it's all for the right reasons. And I think it's because we take great care of people and we don't tolerate people who don't do that. But I would tell you that as I look back on, you know, the beginning phase of my career, so much of what we do um, is about. People and relationships, and so I would say that you know the one thing I'll say is don't, don't, don't take you know the first phase of your career to learn that you can start from minute one um, and 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 and, uh, and and build those relationships now because they'll stand in great said when you you get to become a young to mid career faculty member somewhere.
2: Well, it's great advice. Well, sir, uh, we just want to thank you again. Uh, for joining us on Behind the Knife and sharing some of your experience and uh, some of your some of your knowledge and, and recommendations, and we've really enjoyed it. Uh, hope to have you back again at some point. Um, and I'd I would love,
1: I would love it, and I'll just tell y'all, keep up the good work. Uh, Behind the Knife is a great addition to um, um, to to our collective sort of uh, knowledge base. And I think what you guys have done is awesome. And keep up the good work and let me know how I can help.
0: Absolutely. Until next time, dominate the day.